This week's TribCast is sponsored by Raise Your Hand Texas believes the future of Texas, our communities, economy, and citizenry depends on how well we prepare all students. Meet your regional advocacy director, sign up for our newsletter, and get involved at raiseyourhandtexas.org backslash advocacy. And Texas State Technical College's Money Back Guarantee Program reinforces our commitment to prepare and place highly skilled, technically competent students in the workforce. Learn more at tstc.edu. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for August 5th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. And this week I'm joined by criminal justice reporter Jolie McCullough. Hey, Jolie. Hey. And women's health reporter Eleanor Klivenoff. Hello. Tribcast regular Eleanor Klivenoff. <laughs> we are, we'll talk to Eleanor here in a bit about um, uh, the drama between Texas and the feds over expanding Medicaid's for uh, maternal health. But first, Jolie, we're going to talk with you about um, your blockbuster story this week about the problems in the Texas Juvenile Justice Division, which, as you note in the headline of the story, appears to be on the brink of collapse. Um, you say in the story, it's five lockups are dangerously understaffed. A an ongoing problem that worsened dramatically last year when turnover rate for officers hit more than 70%. And, you know, numerous other problems, including children at times, you know, on the weekends being left in their concrete blocks for 23 hours a day, um, children having to use the bathroom and water bottles, um, and, and many, many other problems, including, you know, uh, growing numbers of children committing self-harm uh, in TG. TJJD's care. Um, what's happening here, Jolie? Tell us about what the what the problem is and how we got to this place. Yeah, um, well, you kind of laid out what's happening, right? So we're at a situation right now where we have, there's, a, there's fewer and fewer kids in these state-run lockups. Um, there has been a push over the, you know, more than a decade to try to get fewer kids in the, in the state facilities um, and keep them closer to home. But essentially, this is an agency, the Texas Juvenile Justice Department, um, and it's five prisons, as you said, it has really always been in crisis. Um, they've never really gotten to a point where they're secure. Um, they were create the department was created um, in 2011 after a scandal with the prisons um, from 2007 with sexual abuse um, reports and arrests really, you know, got the legislature to just reshift and reform and restructure everything about how these prisons and how juvenile detention statewide um, is handled. And since then, you know, there's just continuing to be every couple of years, we get a rash of reports of, you know, sexual abuse, of physical abuse. There's always a trickle. These arrests continue to come in. There's just all, and now, you know, the agency is under federal investigation. The Department of Justice is investigating them um, for their continued, you know, there's continued reports of sexual abuse, of physical abuse, of just overall mistreatment of these kids who are in their care. So this is just, I mean, this is an agency that has never really um, been out of just emergency status. And it, but at this point, it's gotten to just like, it's, it's, 
the agency itself is saying is we are near systemic collapse. Like we are, the only thing we're able to do right now essentially is watch these kids. They're not able to, I mean, very often they have teachers, the people, because these are, these are teenagers, they need to still be in school. Like they're not, the teachers are having to act as just officers, case managers who are supposed to help them with, you know, getting into program, what kind of therapy they need, what kind of services they need also just acting as um, as officers just to, you know, be able to, as you say, because they're not able to all the time, get these kids to the bathroom, get them to the showers, get them to recreation. Um, so it's really, it's just, it's really a dire situation right there right now. And um, you could say it's worsened by this situation that we're in countrywide like worldwide somewhat and just people having left their jobs um pushing for you know when you have better opportunities better pay uh remote opportunities um these are prisons like the adult prisons mostly situated in rural parts of the state so the labor pool is pretty small um these prisons have always had a hard time keeping officers on the job because it is a hard job it's very low pay um, but in the last year, last year, the turnover rate went from about 40%, which is already very bad and was always, always a problem. It was the worst of state of, you know, state jobs throughout the state. But now last year it hit 72%, um, which is just a, an insanely high number of officers leaving this job. And they're, con- they're desperately trying to hire new people, but still to this day, more than half of the people they hire are gone within six months. So they just cannot keep anyone working in these prisons and the kids and the remaining staff are the ones paying the price. So Julie, I wanna take a step back before we talk a little bit more about the problems in the agency. And can you just explain briefly how a kid ends up in the care of TJJD? Like what role does it play in the, the justice system in Texas? Yeah, so kind of like I hinted at this before, but there is there's been a shift. So there are fewer and fewer kids being sent to these prisons uh, statewide. They have about I think I don't know if I said they have about 600 kids right now. Um, That's down from thousands, you know, at the at the beginning of 2011 there. And essentially the shift has been for kids who are engaged, found to have engaged in criminal behavior. Right. They are the the main the first course should be to try to keep them home get mm-hmm. them either you know into some programming um or at, you know some probation maybe there's juvenile probation departments every department every county has so the the real goal is to keep them home if they need detention there are detention centers um throughout the state local co- detention centers county run detention centers um there's you know not in every county but sometimes smaller counties share with neighboring counties that have one. So the main goal is to keep them as close to home as possible so they can, you know, to have as little disruption. Um, The five prisons are meant to be for the most, the the ones that the counties can't handle is what it's meant to be for. They have more, they need more intensive supervision. They need more intensive therapy. Um, They just need more intensive programming overall is what is supposed to be the case. Now, obviously all of this depends on what judges decide. So the judges are the ones who say, okay, you're gonna go to the local detention center. You're gonna go to 
you're going to go home, but be on probation, or you're going to go to a state prison. Um, and it, so you see variants in, in different parts of the states. But generally speaking, these are supposed to be the ones who you, you have, ha it has to be a felony offense. But you know, there's a lot of mis low level drug crimes that are felony offenses in Texas. Um, it has to be a felony offense. Or, and oftentimes, it's the kids who are repeat, uh, like they're, they, they're on probation, and then they they commit another crime. Um, so that's who it's supposed to be, the people who need the most care, whether that be for violent behavior, um, severe mental health needs, oftentimes both. Um, that is what this prison system is set up to, to take care of. It, it, I mean, so I'm basically what it sounds like you're saying here is that these are children who need the most care and they're in a system that's so chronically understaffed and facing so much turmoil that they're receiving practically no care aside from just base level supervision. I mean, is that a fair characterization? Yeah. And I mean, that is what they're, that is their main priority right now is like, we at least have to keep them safe and they're not able to do that. Right. Like, as you said, they are having self-harm behavior, suicidal, like kids on suicide watch has skyrocketed. Um, they are hurting themselves out of desperation, um, out of distress, out of, you know, this is the only way someone's going to let me out to take me to the bathroom. Um, it's, it's just really, it's, it's really drastic. And these are the kids generally speaking, who need the most attention, um, whether that be a most supervision or most care, they're the, they're the high needs population. So, yeah, I mean, the, the stat that you cite in the story was that in 2019, about a third, 33% of the, the, the youths in the care of TJJD were on suicide alert. That number has steadily climbed over the last few years up to 39% in 2020, 41% in 2021, and so far this year, 45%. So we're talking about a 12 percentage point climb in a matter of, um, you know, uh, basically three years, you know, a, a pretty kind of shocking number there the how much of this is a funding related problem julie i mean you talked a little bit about like the incredibly low pay it's something that really, really struck me in your story was talking about how basically a um a uh, guard a uh, in in one of these facilities could essentially make the same amount of money working at the bucky's gas station down the street and you know we're talking about one of the more like stressful challenging jobs that you think of um, paying, you know, you know, basically a about as low a wage as you can imagine. Yeah, I mean, and the paid money, right? Money comes down. Everything comes down to money, right? You have a problem. Pretty much, the world runs on money, right? At least in our society. And so, depending on who you're talking to, the answers are different, but they do all rely on money. So, yes, the agency has been pushing. Um, very hard and even the sunset review board like the the legislative review board that handles that that reviews agencies every 10 years to see how well they're doing if they should continue to exist um they're pushing for higher salaries for officers and the agency was able to implement a 15 percent at first emergency and now steady raise for all officers 
essentially using the money that they would have spent if they had enough officers to begin with. Like they had enough in their budget because they had so many unfilled positions to boost officer pay. Um, but, you know, this is a 15% raise, which is, I mean, on percentage base is great, but that puts it from about 36,000 to a little under 42,000. So it's still pretty low pay. Um, it does put it about about in line with like what a adult prison officer would make. Um, so one of the solutions, right, give our officers more pay, it'll make them stay. Um, it will be able to help us recruit people and also retain them. Um, the other the other proposed solution is, I mean, on the very opposite side of the spectrum is shut, shut them down. Um, and this is a, not a new notion. This is a notion that um, juvenile justice advocates have been pushing for for years of, you know, we the state run prison system time and time and again, we've restructured it, we've rebuilt it, we continuously see the same problems, we need to shut it down and start over. And essentially what that would look like for them, for the ju juvenile justice advocates would look like all the resources, like all the, the resources that you have at these state prisons because the counties can't manage those pop that population, the more high needs population, just give those resources to the county or in the community elsewhere so you're still keeping kids close to home. Um, you're not having to send them off to a state facility, which is failing them anyway. Um, or as Senator Whitmire, um, who Senator John Whitmire, who has been involved in TJJD since before it was TJJD, um, you know, back in for decades, uh, wants to create a couple smaller facilities in urban areas because again if you're in the rural areas you just don't have the labor pool mm -hmm. um for more niche um uh populations for example a very like a high a mental need a mental health facility specifically for those who have the highest mental health needs but put it in say a place like houston that has a much larger percentage of mental health professionals than say Giddings, Texas. Um, so, I mean, it, it, we don't, I mean, there's a lot of solutions out there, but essentially, yes, it all comes down to, are they going to pay for it? What are, what are, you mentioned Senator Whitmire's proposal. What are the other kind of state leaders and legislative leaders saying about this? Have they kind of thrown their support behind any kind of solution? Um, I have not heard anything. So I reached out obviously to Governor Greg Abbott's office, um, both when, in the beginning of July, when um, the agency halted intake, basically saying we don't have enough staff to even take the kids that the counties are sending to us because we can't keep them safe. Um, and again, for the story that we ran this week, and um, he has not personally spoken out. His staff says, you know, he supports the agency. TJJD continues to be a priority for him, and he would support raises um, for officers next year when the legislative reconvene when the legislature reconvenes. Um, but you know, it's just been really surprising to me um, that he hasn't spoken out personally on this, um, given his history with TJJD. Um, he in the past. Um, since he's, you know, been in office, there's been several times where, you know, there's reports of abuse, there's reports of mistreatment, and um, Governor Abbott has led press, you know, press conferences, investigations. He sent in the Texas Rangers. Um, he sent in, like, funding from his office in the past, um, and he hasn't, uh, he hasn't spoken out on this. So I'm, I'm curious. I don't know what that signals, but it, it is, um, 
it seems noteworthy that he hasn't responded to this. Well, of course, and also just saying, you know, supporting more funding or anything for the next legislative session. We, of course, have seen him redirect money in other ways with more urgency around his approach to the border. You know, we've, we're talking about billions of dollars in the price tag of op- Operation Lone Star. And that has involved, you know, basically using mid-term in-between legislative session, you know, uh, budgeting moves in order to allocate more money at that, at times pulling money specifically from TJJD, which is facing these problems. So, I mean, if he wanted to, if, if he viewed this as a crisis as big as the crisis he views as the border, he could do something, right? Yeah, he absolutely could. And I think, I mean, you can't, you can't um, ignore the fact that this is, we're coming up on an election, right? Um, and his focus is elsewhere. Uh, but it is he he definitely could the, and the his critics are definitely going to point to the fact that hey he just took 30 million dollars from TJJD in April um his staff has noted that you know hey these are just these are additional funds that they were getting for uh from the CARES Act this isn't we're not taking money out of their budget but they are taking the money that they were getting specifically for um covid care as you know they they are a state facility and they are take they took all they took that money away um they have taken four times the agency has received uh cares act money and four times it has been taken away from them um so that i mean you can't there you can't get away from that if if this was a priority you would be you would be funding you would be putting money into it yeah and of course we have all also seen this with the uh, foster care system in Texas, another mm-hmm. agency in which children are, you know, coming out in worse shape than they came in, uh, being subjected to abuse, neglect, sleeping in offices at sometimes in the past. And, you know, this continued situation where kids that are supposed to be in the care of Texas, um, of this state, the, the most vulnerable, many of which in the state, and the state repeatedly lets them down in horrific ways and has been unable to solve this problem. You know, you mentioned going back to 2007 on this, it has been unable to solve problems. These are systemic repeated problems within this state. And, you know, even if, even if Abbott were to do something right now or or other state lawmakers were to do something right now, I think it is a legitimate question to ask why has it taken this long? Why has this continued not to change? Why is this basically almost practically standard operating procedure for the state of Texas that children in the care of the state of Texas are suffering? Yeah, I mean, it gets to a question of like, have we just accepted that this is the norm? Um, because it is the norm, and it 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 the fact like it the fact that this is not raising huge alarm bells at least that are being publicly talked about. I don't know, you know, nobody knows what public officials are doing. Um, behind closed doors at this moment, but uh, it's very telling um, that this is, the agency itself is screaming for help, um, saying like we're, like they're acknowledging that we're not able to do what we're supposed to be doing. And um, you're getting silence from, from up top. Yep. All right, thank you, uh, Jolie. Let's, Let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, providing health care coverage to more than 6 million Texans in all 254 counties. And Lone Star College has strategic relationships with industry leaders to provide robust workforce staffing, 
Find out more at lonestar.edu. Okay, so when the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade earlier this year in the Dobbs case, one of the first things we heard from Governor Greg Abbott was noting that the Texas legislature approved and, and Abbott signed off on a bill to expand Medicaid for new, uh, for kind of maternal, post-maternal care six months after a parent gives birth. This was, you know, cited as something as, as alarms were being raised about, you know, abortion and, and care for women in this state, that this was an area where Texas had prepared for this inevitability. But yesterday, Thursday, we received some surprising news as Texas state leaders began raising the alarm that Texas's application to extend those Medicaid benefits has been rejected by the federal government, by the Biden administration. Eleanor, you can tell us a little bit about the confusion. There's been some kind of further reports since that kind of news broke. What's what's happening here? Right. So we know now that Texas's application uh, to extend postpartum Medicaid to six months after birth um, has been, according to the state, has been deemed not approvable in its current form by the federal government. Now, the federal um, uh, centers for Medicare and Medicaid has said that, you know, they have not rejected the application. It is still under consideration. But, um, you know, the state it, it seems like the takeaway is that in the current form, it is not going to be approved. Okay, tell us a little bit about what this extension of benefits meant for, you know, parents in this situation and why, you know, kind of people on both sides of the aisle felt like this was something that was important to extend. Right. So important context here is that Texas is one of just 12 states that has not expanded Medicaid. So Medicaid in Texas... Um, essentially reaches only like the most low income adults, um, you know, under extremely specific, cir narrow circumstances. And beyond that is basically for low income children. And so adults who um, cannot afford health care um, that in other states would be on Medicaid are not on Medicaid in Texas. And, you know, that has um, a lot of negative health repercussions in general, but it's particularly problematic for uh, people of you know childbearing age who are um, trying to either not get pregnant or safely get pregnant um, and have children. Um, it's why Texas, um, you know, people who give birth in Texas have extremely low rates of like getting prenatal care because by the time you find out you're pregnant, uh, you're generally in somewhat into that pregnancy. Then you can qualify for um, like basically mater you know, maternal Medicaid. So it's um, more people qualify for Medicaid, or it's easier to qualify for Medicaid um, once you are pregnant. And then until last year, you know, well, and still, um, Texas said, you know, after you give birth, you get two extra months to stay on Medicaid, and then you get turfed off. Um, you know, Texas has extremely high rates of maternal mortality, and like the number one recommendation by experts and the state's own maternal mortality and morbidity committee was to extend that um, to 12 months after you give birth, because you know a lot of people are discovering um, health complications after they give birth. A lot of people are discovering health complications when they give birth, and then you have no way of treating that. Um, it also is like, you know, a lot of people are intermittently pregnant over the course of their uh, you know reproductive age. So it's um, it makes sense to keep people on Medicaid as long as possible. 
um, you know, according to pretty much every health expert out there. Um, so last year during the legislative session, the Texas House of Representatives had this big bipartisan effort. They quickly passed this 12-month extension, and it was all going to be really easy to do because the federal government said, if you want to extend this to 12 months, we are going to like clear the path for you. You don't have to apply for a waiver. We're going to make this happen. No, not no questions asked, but very few questions asked. That's mm-hmm. how much they wanted to get 12 months coverage. Mm-hmm. Then it went to the Senate. And the Senate kicked that down to six months of coverage instead of 12 months. And the federal government said, okay, now you have to apply. Six months, you have to fill, you have to apply for a waiver application, which is a lengthy and annoying process. Um, and Texas said, okay. So they applied just a few months ago. And that brings us to yesterday when we heard that that application was not going to be likely approved by the federal government. And do we know why? Um, the <laughs> simple question yeah, with not a simple question. answer. Um, <laughs> the, so the legislative um, advocates or, you know, uh, several legislators who were involved in the passage of this bill said they believe um, from, you know, some conversations that they've had that the concern with the application is around some of the language that was written into the law as well that says um Essentially, this coverage extends for six months after either you deliver a baby or you have an involuntary miscarriage. Um, That language has been in the law going back several sessions um, or has been in the bill going back several sessions. Um, And as Representative Donna Howard, who is a nurse, pointed out, you know, involuntary miscarriage is not a medical term. Um, It's not really sure what that is. Um, And they believe or uh, Representative Howard and Representative Tony Rose, who um, both were big advocates for this uh, bill, believe that the Biden administration may be concerned that um, it would not extend to, for example, a woman who had to have a medically necessary abortion um, and, you know, due to a medical complication that would require her to continue to receive uh, health care benefits. So um, that just that language. But again, the language is in the statute. So well, uh, CMS says that they're going to continue to try to get this, that this is still under review. It does seem that the legislature would have to change the language of that for them to change their application. Yeah. And of course, as we mentioned similarly in the conversation about TJJD, we are still many months away from a legislative session. And it seems unlikely there would be any kind of a special session to change that language. I was just going to say, are we going to have, wh- which which one of these things is going to get us a special session? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would say- there's so, much, um, there's so much on the table right now. They are equally unlikely. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, Eleanor, is this not kind of the federal government cutting off their nose despite their face here? I mean, this is, it may not have been exactly what they wanted, but this is, you know, more than what was going to be offered to to mothers or pregnant people after, you know, than, than what was currently in place. Right. And I mean, we don't know the motives behind any of this. I do think that um, it's worth noting that right now, because of the public health emergency, which goes at this point through October, but it may likely be extended through at least January, no one is currently being moved off the Medicaid rolls. So mm-hmm. right now, this doesn't actually impact Texans um, in that uh, if you had a baby at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, you are still on postpartum Medicaid, you know, years at this point later. Um, we are 
careening quickly towards this, you know, it's often called, you know, the Medicaid cliff, which is that everyone's going to start getting turfed off of this after having, you know, health benefits for more than two years. Um, so that is a looming problem. And this needs, you know, the a spokesperson for the Texas Health and Human Services Commission has said, you know, their hope is that this gets resolved before that happens. Um, but again, that depends on when any of this happens. Sure. And I mean, do we really know how this gets resolved? Is it, is, is, you know, the federal government, um, are there hands tied here or is there wiggle room? Is this, is this a situation where there can be negotiations? It sort of remains to be seen. I mean, it seems like if what we are hearing is true, which is that it's not approvable because of this involuntary miscarriage language, Mm And that's in the statute. The statute would have to change. I mean, you know, the federal government is sort of holding the control here in the sense that, you know, if anyone's, if if there's an exception to be made, they're the ones who are going to make it. Um, There's a lot of sort of tension between Texas and the federal government right now that you may have heard of. Uh, Oh, really? Yes. (laughs) Uh, So I guess, you know, immediately, um, both Governor Greg Abbott and Dave Phelan jumped in to really say, you know, this is the Biden administration playing politics with Texans, you know, in Texas women's lives. Mm-hmm. Now, to be fair, the federal government, uh, to put words in their mouth, I think would probably say, you could have just approved, you could have just voted for 12 months and we would have rubber stamped you and you, none of this would have even had to have happened. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right. Well, we will see it as a, um, you know, a, a, feels like an issue that's in the weeds, but it's one that affects a lot of people's lives and in, in healthcare. So thank you, Eleanor. And thank you, Jolie. Thank you to our producer, Justin. And thank you to our sponsors, Raise Your Hand Texas, Texas State Technical College, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, and Lone Star College. That's all for us this week. We'll talk to you next week. Rural Texans provide food, fuel, and fiber that sustain Texas, but they are often left out of the conversation in Austin. What makes for a thriving rural community? Join us November 17th and 18th in Lubbock and online to examine the future of rural Texas with industry experts, community leaders, local lawmakers, and more. RSVP to attend at texastribune.org events.